yeah just i think everything's overwhelming till it's done like if you ask me like going back to before so three four years ago it wasn't even the thought to be a foster parent or to uh, possibly foster to adopt and then when i first started it it was daunting to have two children and not one and then it was three four then five then six and now since june of 2018 25 so you as a human being will have self-doubt so when you put yourself in the situation of something new in a chaotic environment your kind of preservation mode kicks in and say no i don't want to do that don't rock the boat you know you want to be in a state of comfort and ease and safety but you truly experience kind of some of the biggest growth when you step out of your comfort zone so you truly don't know what you can accomplish until you actually do it and then you reflect on it Yes, but before I even go into introduction, introducing him, I just want to say that this relaunch that we're doing right now, I'm so happy with the direction that we've taken. We're having great speakers come on board, speakers that generally have great quality content and also information and experiences to share with you. So without further ado, our next guest, our current guest right now is Roman Prokopchuk. I hope I pronounced that right. I did a lot of practice. So Roman Prokopchuk and he's surprisingly or most fascinating is a foster father to over 25 kids since 2018. Now I tried to do the calculation. I was thinking to myself, there's only what, two and a half years. It's not even two and a half years yet. And 25 kids over that time. He's also the podcast host for a podcast platform called digital savage experience. Now in his podcast, they interview different people from drug cartels and so many people with different experiences so that people can learn from them and they give tips on top of that. He's also the founder of a digital marketing agency, which goes by the name Nova Zora Digital. And it started operation in 2012. So you could check those things out. And also through this conversation, if you have any questions, please make sure you send that, put that in the comment section or get in touch with him directly. Without further ado, welcome to the show, Roman. How you doing? Uh, I appreciate the intro and you did well on the last name. <laughs> Thank you very much. I was actually spending a lot of time because I've, so just to let you guys know, um, I got in touch with Roman. We got connected on Clubhouse. Clubhouse has been blowing up recently. And funny enough, I've been listening into your podcast, into the Clubhouse that you've been in from time to time to hear you pronounce your name. And that's how I kind of got a hang of it. I listened to a few of your podcasts as well. And I listened to some of the ones that you were guesting. And I honestly have to say, before we even go any further, that the first point I made there about the foster father, foster father, um, foster dad to over 25 kids since 2018. Now that blew my mind because I was in a clubhouse room and you were talking about your experiences as a father to many kids and the life that you poured into them. So before we even go to that further end destination and ongoing destination, tell me about Roman growing up as a kid. Who was Roman growing up as a kid? Yeah, so I'm a uh, first-generation immigrant from Ukraine. So I came to the U.S. in 1990 uh, when I turned five with six other family members to a two-bedroom apartment. So Ukraine was still under the Soviet Union. So we went through to get here. We went through Vienna, Austria, Rome, Italy, and then came here. Uh, I, we had the option to stay in Italy. The Italian government was going to give us like permanency. So it's interesting to think the variables if I stayed in Italy, how I would have turned out. And then coming to the U.S., we were supposed to go 
to California and, and we ended up going to New Jersey, which is East Coast, West Coast dynamic. And that's also a, a lot different. So I ended up in New Jersey. I didn't speak the language. I went right into kindergarten where I took a class. They put me in English second language. So I was pretty proficient. I guess two years it took me to kind of uh, uh, school out of it or, you know, test out of that class. And then, you know, I spoke English. And when you learn a language before a certain age, the way your mind is programmed, you don't retain the accent. So it was nice, obviously. And, you know, I went to school here. I went to uh, college here for criminal justice. So last semester of my senior year, I interned with the Secret Service. So I held a top secret federal clearance uh, on the counterfeit currency squad. I thought I was going to go that direction, but I graduated and went the uh, 2008 recession happened. So basically, I couldn't find a job because state, local, federal agencies froze hiring. So I looked for probably like 12 months. No one was hiring. And then I got an opportunity. The only thing I really did to kind of keep my mind off it was exercise, work out, go to the gym. So I met someone there and they said, hey, come out to my car at the end of one of my workouts where it could have went different directions. Yeah, he said, I want to give you something. So I went out and I had nothing to lose, really. And they opened their trunk and they gave me a packet about search engine optimization. They said, read this, go online for another month or two, and then you can start doing that for my uh, for my company. So, you know, I had nothing to lose, really. So I said, why not? And, uh, you know, 12 years later, going on 13 and working with a lot of fortune 500s at this point, 600 clients later and different, you know, seven figure portfolios managed all this other stuff, really driving my own success and being in charge in the driver's seat of my own destiny from a professional sense. Nice. So because I came to the UK at the age of 11, when from Nigeria with my family, and I could speak English, but it was the accent thing that kind of hit it for me. And I guess for me at the age of 11, it quite, it hit my confidence quite a lot in terms of not being able to blend in, as you would say, because I could speak it, but everyone knew it wasn't my first language. So that was a very interesting thing for me and it affected my teenagehood. So now my question to you then is how, how was your experience growing up? Because of course, this is a journey to fatherhood. How was your experience growing up with your father? I'm guessing he came along with you guys when you came to the US. He came. Well, there's a, it's actually interesting. He was there, but he wasn't there. So he wasn't really, he didn't play an active part in our lives. Um, he actually was uh, physically abusive to my mom, to my uh, grandparents, my aunt um, in Ukraine. And after we came here, so when my mom was pregnant with my brother, he threw her down the stairs. So the doctor said my, my, uh, my brother was supposed to be uh, stillborn, but thank God he actually graduated and got a master's degree from Columbia University. So obviously you know, that that worked out well. But I basically had situations where I didn't have him as my main male role model because uh, he was very, in terms of a narcissist and was physically, verbally abusive to my mom and other members of my family. So seeing that, so I told myself, if I grow up, I would not want the same experience for someone else. And I kind of planted that in my, uh, in my mind. So really my grandfather was uh, my main uh, male role model that I really looked up to uh, growing up. Yeah, because I was listening to um, episode 97 on the Heroes podcast where you were interviewed, where you were interviewed by Stacey. And you mentioned about your grandfather and the role he played in as a role model, a male role model. Can you key into a bit more of that as a role model, the role he played and how that influenced you? 
Yeah. So his worth, his work ethic was number one, him being selfless and providing for his family. So before we came over here, he was already retired in Ukraine. So he came over here to the U.S. and he got a job. He was 55 at that point already. Uh, he got a job doing roofing, which if you know, you know, doing roofs and roofing yeah. summer and winter, that's a hard job. So he did that for 20 years, uh, winter, summer, obviously in New Jersey gets cold and very hot. It could be, you know, uh, 100, 120 degrees sometimes and cold here too. So he he didn't complain six days a week, 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. And uh, Sunday he would go to church 10 in the morning and six at night and every week, no complaints, just did what he had to do. And was there in terms of you know financial support, moral support, just being there. So I think his work ethic and and the way he he put people above himself was you know a very good I guess light in my life. And um, he actually passed away February of 2019. And that's one reason in my show I switched to an interview format because I think it helped me in the grieving process because I you know I was listening to stories of people go through stuff, go through loss. Uh, pain and how they overcame it and it connected well with me and I think it attributed to help me in the healing process and and then I had a emotional tie-in with staying with the interview format so that's one reason I kind of stayed with that as well so he had that impact on me and um, I felt like when I lost him like I was gonna just like shut down like stop recording my show you know take it easy in terms of clients and take some time off but then I thought about it and you know before he passed he told me that he was proud of me and you know what I've accomplished and it wouldn't be fair to him and the sacrifices he made bringing me here and how hard he he worked for me to just give up and stop and that wouldn't honor him so i felt like i would have to go extra hard and do whatever i had to do to really shine a light show you know who i am what i have to offer the world how i can help people and and have him live on in me in that sense absolutely now that's brilliant and it's i love what you said the 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 there's nothing like um, your male role model saying that they're proud of you. Now, that's, that's, that's definitely big. Now, what I, without take, just to take us a bit back now, you mentioned that, unfortunately, growing up, your dad was quite abusive in the family. How were you able to still have him? I guess he wasn't emotionally present for you, but how were you able to still stay in the same house with him and also have your grandfather as a contrasting figure? How did that work? How do you navigate that? Yeah, I didn't really have a choice when I was younger. So I didn't really understand the dynamic or that, you know, of divorce of anything like that. So, you know, my mom really stayed together with him just for the sake of me and my brother. Um, she actually uh, got a divorce. Um, when was it 2008? Okay. So 2008, 2009, she got a divorce from him. You were of, then? Uh, so I'm 36. So when am I? I was 24, I believe. 20. Yeah, 24, because I was born in 1984. Um, and even before then, um, you know, there were situations where like he, he would get loud with my mom before she threw him out of the house and then got a restraining order and then started the, um, the uh, process of getting a divorce. And I think that's one reason. I mean, right now I haven't, I'm not going to lie, I haven't worked out consistently in a while with this whole lockdown and everything. But before I would just go heavy and hard. So I was like 240, but like six percent body fat at all times so people thought i played american football all the time yeah. but i think one reason i did that was to kind of subconsciously protect people around me because it you know i'm kind of more in that state when i was like my max i would be more physically intimidating and people would kind of in my mind think twice before doing anything and more so like protecting my mom per se because i really started working out at 18 and 
before she threw him out of the house like that that last time i remember she he got loud with her and got in her, and got in her face so i jumped like in front of her right in his face and i was like do something right now like i was little i couldn't do anything but like do something right now and see what's gonna happen he didn't do anything uh because i would have probably threw him out the window but um it was one of those situations where like standing up and you know speaking up and protecting people and i think uh, subconsciously that's one reason that i you know i guess worked out so hard for that kind of situation wow that's you know that protective nature now this is where i have this conversation with a lot of men and a lot of fathers so that protective nature that is of course your loved one so my question is with the experience unfortunate experience of your father and the relationship you had or didn't have how did that affect your idea of masculinity or manhood if we put it that way uh, it was weird because there was a tie in, tie in of like thinking that you're inadequate in the sense that he's not around or he's not, you know, there for you in terms of time or emotion or any kind of tie in to really be there or be present as a dad. So it was like feeling inadequate as I guess a child or a son, like I wasn't like good enough or I did something wrong that he didn't care to take the time to invest and in actually like raising me and showing me, you know, what a, a father or dad is or what a male role model is. So I guess in that like subconscious sense, there was like a feeling of inadequacy growing up because, you know, he wasn't around and and, and like felt kind of, I guess, useless per se. But I think I learned I've learned to deal with it better. And the fact that, you know, that's not the case in coming to terms with it, I think, helped me kind of get past it. See, that's very interesting, because for me, we've had experiences where I've spoken to a few people where coming from families like that, it took them a while to be able to accept that that wasn't normal, that sort of behavior wasn't normal, what they experienced. Now, going into becoming a man and the journey for yourself, how were you able to, without being allowing it to get too toxic, you talked about how maybe you feel that your experiences caused you to go almost overdrive and want to work hard. How are you able, how were you able and how are you able to ensure that it doesn't get toxic? how do you manage that drive? Yeah, I mean, I have to kind of take a step back because I'm not going to lie. It's not like it, it isn't 100% impacting things. I think I have a habit to self-sabotage, like personal relationships or situations with people close to me and really being aware of it so I can like step back and, and address it. Because in the moment, I think, you know, some of those behaviors that my father had unfortunately impacted me and and still live on even though that feeling of you know inadequacy may be gone somewhat but like the fact that he got anger really angry really you know uh quickly and then that turned to you know you know being physical or like you know obviously beating my mom and be, being physically abusive like i have to be self-conscious of that in order to not obviously get to that point um so I don't blame it on him. Like, you know, if I get angry or upset, but just, you know, unfortunately I didn't have a dad that was really there. That's the reason. I mean, I have to step up and take accountability for that, but there is that tie in throughout childhood that I think leads or adds to that kind of feeling. Okay. The reason why I say that is because I know for me, like my growing up, my father was physically present, but not present emotionally. Now, mine was a disconnect where he didn't try so much. And I found that it's only recently that through friends and family members, I've been told that I try to always stay busy to make myself feel like I attach my value to the things I do as opposed to who I am. 
And in terms of the question of self-sabotage and relationships, I've often found that that's somewhere I need to keep working on and reminding myself because I've forgiven my father and we're building relationships. But then that brings about the question of how much have I forgiven myself as well? Is, is that something that you had to deal with in terms of forgiveness of your father and accepting that you are making progress in yourself? Yeah, I think reaching that forgiveness point, like I think I forgave him, but I still don't necessarily want him in my life. And even like I haven't, all I've talked to him was via text message since uh, 2008. I've never spoken to him on the phone once. Um, and it's just one of those things, understanding his behavior or his motivation for things. So when he asks for something, like it's very narcissistic. So there's a an idea behind it that benefits him. It's not solely to help or be there or comfort or or come to terms or like get get on a good page in terms of like, okay, yeah, I, you know, the things that I've done when you were growing up, like, I'm sorry that you had to go through that. You know, I acknowledge that, you know, the way I behaved, like he still has not um, accepted what he's done. Like I've accepted to forgive him, but I've accepted also to not have him as a toxic part in my life. So if that like reconciliation ever happens or we come to terms and we're on speaking terms, okay, but I'm still not necessarily, I can come to terms with it, but I don't forgive, you know, what he's done to uh, my mom and my other family members as well. So, and he's very narcissistic in that sense. So when he asks for something, it's like, you have to psychoanalyze the reason behind that. So like, he'll say, Hey, let's meet up. But like one time he's saying, let's go flip houses together. I'm like, dude, I don't want to flip houses with you. Like I want to have a genuine conversation of the shit that you've done to me in terms of the, the way you screwed up my logic and, and, and my, my thought process when I was a child. So there's like situations like that where it's like not genuine. I mean, he'll text me happy birthday and send me a check, which is nice because I can pay a bill or something, but that doesn't make anything right. It's not like, you know, just cause you gave me some money doesn't excuse the last 36 years. Um, and you know, he wishes me uh, Merry Christmas, uh, you know, happy new year, whatever holidays I say, you know, thank you, you too. And that's about it. He doesn't try to take that conversation further. I guess some people may say, well, you may have to meet him halfway and try to meet him like that. But I think I've been let down it. I've forgiven him and accepted it. And if he wants anything further to me, even consider it, he has to come and, and really tell me how he's feeling or, you know, what he's about. Absolutely. See, now this is an area where people are, I've found that sometimes people get confused as to, like you said, some people may say that you need to meet them halfway. How are you able to have that central peace within yourself? I know you said that there've been times where you've tried and you've been disappointed. So in addition to that, growing up, did you ever try to confront him about those feelings? I, I, I have, but like in your situation, I mean, like culturally coming from Ukraine, it's a very like stoic culture because it was in the Soviet Union. Like uh, there's a stereotype that like men don't show emotions or don't cry or don't allude to how they're feeling or talk about how they're feeling. Mm -hmm. So he's retained that. He hasn't tried to change that. So I don't know what he's feeling or how he's feeling. He's never expressed that. I mean, I don't even think that he ever really like consistently told me like, I love you. Like, you know, when the kid, like he's going, you're going to school, you have a kid, you know, I love you. See you later or whatever. Like he never even did that. So I don't know if he had an issue with the word or like, just like he was programmed in the way, like I said, that like that stereotype of, you know, being Eastern European, not showing emotion or feelings, but 
you know, I, he's never really expressed that in that sense. So, you know, the, the, what you said there, that just got me. The three words, I love you. I never thought that meant so much. So my father finally said it. I was 18, 19 at the, first, the time he first said it. And I had to say it constantly to him, for him to say it back. Now, it's interesting because so many people, in his idea, he felt that he'd done things that suggest that he loves me, that he didn't need to say it. So my question to you is then, because there's this idea that we are who our fathers are. Sometimes we become what fathers are. How have you been, because I'm sure it's a constant, like you said, you have to constantly remind yourself of the habits that you need to avoid. How have you constantly been able to ensure that you show love and you express love as a man and a father? Yeah, I mean, I have to be conscious of it and just take take time down, like take time away and, and really dedicate time. So like you said, somebody can be present, but not present, either emotionally or in terms of focus. You can be somewhere different, but being in a space around people, but like your mind is elsewhere. So I think just doing little things in terms of like physically being present and paying attention in that moment. So things like, you know, my two, my two uh, older foster kids are watching cartoons or something. And I walk from the kitchen to head down to my office or where I record and like, Hey, sit down, watch cartoons with us. All right. I'll sit down in five, 10 minutes. They forget that I'm there, but acknowledging that and sitting with them for a little bit and watching some like nonsense Paw Patrol or whatever, you know, that really means a lot to them and shows them that you're willing to take time out of your day and like, you know, uh, interact with them in terms of, you know, what they're doing and on their level. It's interesting because you've led on to the point, next point I wanted to talk about, which is the bulk of this conversation I wanted to have. Being a foster dad, foster father. How, I, I've read your story, I know your story. Tell us how did that come about? The decision to become a foster father yeah so that obviously started in the in a situation where you know heartbreak so we were on a uh, infertility journey so the last three and a half four years we've experienced five miscarriages two of which happened on back-to-back christmases so now christmas has that kind of negative tie-in or connotation regardless of happy how happy it is to that date that event is tied um and uh, you know we spent over a hundred thousand dollars out of pocket on treatments and stuff because insurance doesn't cover a lot of it. And we thought, you know, maybe it's a, it's a, it's another way for us to start a family at best at most help, you know, as many kids in the system, because there's like 400,000 kids in the foster care system in the U S and a lot of them are coming from situations with no dads, dads that are abusive, dads that are incarcerated, you know, dads that are drug dealers. So they don't necessarily have the best idea or role models, you know, what a man is or somebody that cares for them in, you know, a dad or a father capacity. So we thought, you know, are we crazy? Yes, but let's do it. So, you know, we went to an orientation, did like the, uh, the, the case study, which evaluate why, like who you are as a family, why you want to do it, uh, background checks, criminal checks, stuff like that. Then you get a home study, which they come and make sure your home is safe, how many kids you can have up to how many kids. And then you get your home license and you get a license as a foster parent and, you know, the state that you're in. Literally, we got licensed May 31st of 2018. First placement we got next day, June 1st, 2018. We thought we can handle one child. They basically called for two boys, siblings. They said, you know, we've called around because you're on a list. Yeah. And if there's sibling groups and you can't place them in one in one place, you have to split all the kids up in different homes, which is even more traumatic because if they're first getting removed, the only thing that they have is being together and being there for each other in this scary situation. And a lot of the time, it's like seven kids getting taken. So it's really hard to place seven kids in one home. So I, I 
I see that component too, where it's like separating kids from their siblings or their cousins, which like what kind of effect it has when they're being taken sometimes the day um, and just coming with like a garbage bag of clothes, not even anything specific to your home. And oftentimes like with a, a black eye and a bloody nose and, and all kinds of crazy stuff. So it, it, it's very interesting. And then June 1st, we said, you know, and they said, you know, if, if, if you can't take them, we're probably going to have to split them up. So we thought about it like the only thing these two boys have is each other. Can we really be the, the reason why they can uh, be split up? And we said, no. So let's give two a try. And then two, two turned into, you know, three, four, five. We've had up to six kids at once. And it becomes just like, like a process. So like, you know what to expect. You have... Uh, times, regimented times, because the other thing, a lot of these kids have been starved or, you know, malnourished or neglected in terms of food and, uh, you know, hygiene and health. So giving them an actual uh, schedule really helps them in terms of coping because they know when their next meal is coming. They know when bedtime is, they know when they're getting a bath. So that kind of consistency helps them as well. And, you know, since then that placement, we had the first placement for a year they said that we would be going to uh, be able to adopt them. But with the foster care system, things can change in terms of facts overnight. So we had them for a year. We're proud of their mom. She actually did what she was supposed to do. She actually took care of them well. She just had some personal issues and uh, she got them back. Um, obviously, it hurt a lot because they called us mom and dad. We thought we were going to adopt them for almost a year. And situations like that, like it's still heartbreaking, even if a child's in your home for, you know, a weekend or a year, because then you think, you know, are they safe? What's going on with them? You know, can we help them in some way, but we don't know where they are or what they're doing. So there's like all these what ifs with all the kids that we've had in our home, more so because we miss them, we care for them, and we're just hoping they're not returned to the same situations that they came out of. Now that's because the reason... <laughs> When I think about this, it really hits me because I've worked in the education system. I've worked in two different schools and I've seen young people that have just, they, they, if they were allowed to say they would want to leave the home, but they understand what that would look like and that would mean for the family. I had one of my mentees at a time, he told me, sir, can you adopt me? Because his father was not in his life. And it was a, I had to really take some time and actually speak to my supervisor because it was emotionally draining because I didn't know what to do. And it was, a, it was unprofessional for me even to research into it. So my question then is bearing in mind that these kids are in your house. So what's the age range roughly? What's the age range been? Uh, we've had the one child we have now, basically he was born, he spent two weeks in the hospital and he came home to us. So as young as two weeks of age, just because the fact that he was born with cocaine in the system and premature at uh, four and a half pounds. And the oldest we've had was uh, 12 years and it was called a respite. So we're foster to adopt, but we also take respite places. Respite meaning if there's another foster home that has foster kids, sometimes they leave the country or go on vacation that the biological parent says, no, they can't go with you. Um, so sometimes, and then the judge agrees because you can't just leave the state or leave the country. You have to get permission from the caseworker, the biological parent, even though they lost the child and they're working to get the child back, they still have the right to say, no, I don't want them to go. And then the judge. But also situation where like a family member has surgery or needs to rest or something happens, basically you need another uh, licensed foster home to, to take care of that child. You can't so believe we, in the family friends if you're a foster. Uh, you, that's a good question. You may be able to do that. Well, you can do that 
if if that family has biological kids who can do that, you can't leave a child for more than uh, three days with a person that's non-licensed if you are a foster parent, but you can expedite like a background check and get like a waiver, like for that situation, if it's an emergency, we're like, okay, I need surgery or I have to leave the country for an emergency for three weeks. If you identify like a direct family member, like, you know, my mother-in-law or my, my mom, and she gets a background check real quick and it comes back, they'll let them in that situation do it. But usually if they can do it, they try to find another foster home for that duration of time. So, you know, so-and-so has a surgery. Can this you know child be in your home for 10 days? And that, that boy was 12 years old. So he was in a home with, with older foster parents. And obviously I'm not saying I'm young, but I'm 30, 36. So my wife like took him to top golf, which is like this interactive golf thing. I would go outside and play football with them, play video games with them. And obviously a kid loves that. So like when we told him he has to go home, he is crying. He's like, no, I want to stay with you. Like I want to be with you. So like just doing those simple things and connecting on that level you know, adds a lot. And obviously that foster home, the, the foster parents were older, so they didn't necessarily connect that well doing those things really. So, I mean, I see those things as well, but majority of the children we do have are like the, the preschool ages, like two, three, four. Okay. Now the, the, I know Hollywood is so different from reality. I, I came up on during December time, we watched a show called instant family on Netflix. I don't know if you've come across it. It was, about, I can't remember, he's a famous actor. Mark but, Wahlberg? Yeah, Mark Wahlberg. Also, you have watched it. Yeah, I saw it when we had our first placement, and it was sad because, oh. like, the, the children uh, were taken at one point, and then I guess the mother went back to drugs, and then they came back, and they were able yeah. to be adopted. But, like, that was, like, emotional to watch because at that point when we watched it, it looked like the case was going to reunification so we could, you know, relate to that situation. It's, you know, it's fairly accurate, not necessarily, but for the sense that if you do have an older child in the system, they're harder to adopt because everybody wants like, oh yeah, I want a baby because you can raise the baby and, you know, you know, teach it and the baby learns and, and takes on your personality. When you get a, a teenager, it's not as, I don't know, the, the situation's a little different. So in terms of statistics, the older you are, the harder it is to adopt if you are in the system, because you can be in the system when there's no other relatives to take you and the parent lost parental rights permanently, a termination of parental rights, and nobody adopts you. So technically, your guardian is the state. So you just stay from foster home to foster home, and then you age out. If you age out, there's like a 60% chance that you end up in a gang, incarcerated, dead, human traffic, they're on drugs. So like having a, a, a good foster home and somebody that actually cares, I think is even that more impactful. And if you look at the, the prison system in the US, 60% of male inmates in, in currently incarcerated were in the foster care system in one time or another. Wow, okay. How, see now that's so frustrating, but it's one of those things where is there anything, because I'm in the UK here, you're in the US, what's being done? Because I, I, was, I was almost in tears watching Instant Family on Netflix because I didn't know, I, like I told you, I almost wanted to adopt one of my mentees. But I was thinking to myself, that must be heart-wrenching for those kids, what they go through. How are you able to deal with that? Bearing in mind, I know they're not all teen, you haven't really gotten teenagers to foster, but I'm sure kids come with their emotional, as we say, luggage. How are you able to navigate that knowing that you may not have them for long? 
just doing as best as you can and offering a safe home and just being open to to looking it's it's funny because we're like therapists counselors and like psychologists all at the same time because my frustration is foster foster parents are the ones that spend 24 hours a day you know on the weekends it's 24 hours obviously kids go to school but majority of the time so you can see different behaviors you can see different triggers that tie back to some of the abuse or neglect that they've seen or that they have been you know that's been done to them so even if it's a few days, it's basically being as open as possible, as loving as possible, you know, providing, you know, nutritious meals, having a schedule, spending some quality time with them. And then obviously, like I said, you know, some spend three, four, five, six days with you and you still miss them just as much and worry about them. But, you know, it's, it's just kind of being there. And like you said, every situation is different. So, you know, it's, they're all crazy in their own right, because some of these kids at two, three, four years old have been through more than a, you know, adult would be in their whole life from like the, the drugs and the abuse and all this crazy stuff. Um, I mean, it's just, I can tell you each case and how crazy it is. And, and, and basically the system is broken probably in the UK too, um, that needs, you know, reform um, in my state foster parents don't have that much say in terms of the case, even though they're the ones that spend the most time in terms of recommendations. Like, you know, you see a behavior, you have to like fight for therapy or services when like people say, no, they don't need it. So then you have to kind of kick down doors and be louder and copy more people. But I mean, there, there has to be reform. So that I try to go on shows and media publications and advocate for foster care reform. Actually, my wife and a bunch of other foster moms in my state talk to the state senators and legislatures about creating a foster care bill of rights. So our voices are weighed more in cases and heard in terms of what we're experiencing and what we're seeing with behavior, what kids are saying to us, because a lot of the times, like, you know, this is concerning. The child is saying this, maybe you need to take him to a counselor or a psychiatrist because he's dealing with this. And sometimes it's like, no, no, he'll, you know, he'll get that when he goes home or whatever and stuff like that. And I think, the system itself does a bad job in terms of uh, preparing children for reunification. Yeah. And in terms of visitation, so a child is taken and usually like if it's not like for attempted murder or something or like sexual abuse, the parents or guardians that they were taken from gets uh, visitation almost immediately. So it starts with on-site supervised, which usually is like two hours, and then they graduate if they trust them. So it's on-site uh, on supervised for like four. Then they bring them to that facility and it's unsupervised two to four. And then you graduate to at-home supervised, then at-home unsupervised for about, I would say, two to four hours. And then it goes to overnights. When it moves to overnights, you know the case is close to reunification, usually four to six weeks. But nobody prepares them other than us that you're going to go back to a place that's going to trigger traumatic experiences because that's where you were taken from. That's when abuse happened to you. That's where you went into stuff. So we advocate highly to get therapy both for the children to get them prepared for the, the parents because they haven't had them for a year. So they don't know how they've developed really for extensive period of time other than interacting with them during a visit. That's a few hours and, and then having therapy for them together. And a lot of the times we get, oh, yeah, they're going to get therapy when they go back. And literally, that's nonsense because that never happens. So and we have to fight for that. And we have to be the ones that prepare the kids because we've had kids that you can see it's traumatic, like behaviors like uh, uh, one child went back to do the overnights 
And then he came back and he just stood there and just like peed his pants. He he's potty trained and he peed his pants in school. And then like one time he like took his pants off in the middle of the playground and like started exposing himself to, and he's like four years old. That's not normal behavior because it's triggered by something. And the caseworker was like, well, that that's, you know, that's normal for that age. I'm like, what world are you living in? That is not normal. That's not what I've experienced for a year. They don't behave like that. This is being triggered by something. This is stress. This is something that's being brought up. So you really need to have them see a child counselor or therapist. And it's just like, no, well, so like stuff like that's super frustrating. That, that, see, just hearing that, because I've never really had this conversation with people, but it, just hearing that, in respect of where you look at it, that kind of stuff ticks me off so much. And my thing is that surely, even if they had to talk about it in a, let's say, objective manner, you are serving the society, you are making a big difference, and it benefits the society in a long-term run. But why are they not... <sighs> I'm not even in the US and I'm angry already, but honestly, it's... It's, I really respect, I really respect all that you stand for. And I've listened to some of your um, clubhouse rooms and it's been amazing hearing how natural it is for you to show that sense of love from the conversation you had, experiences you've talked about. I could, some parents struggle to even have one child and you've been able to be involved in the lives of over 25 kids and counting. And it's one of those things where my question then is, how are you able to maintain that love? Because loving, as much as it is given, it can also be demanded. How are you able to refuel that? What's your source? Yeah, I mean, just my faith. So I believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. So like prayer, just thinking about it, just recalibrating myself, just from stepping away from different things and, and trying to recalibrate from a lot of stress and stuff like that. Just getting caught up in daily things, because I think the kids in each kid's case and the situations that they're coming from keeps me more grounded. So when I get like an email that's like passive aggressive or somebody sends me some like you know, escalation in terms of something like in terms of a client, I think, is this really worth getting upset about or like the re reaction I'm going to have when like these kids still can smile, still can feel, still can heal to a certain extent in the process of healing coming from all these traumatic situations. And then it kind of keeps me grounded and recalibrated. And obviously, currently we have five children. It's hard to like juggle alone time uh, with five kids and then working and then two dogs and my wife. So sometimes it's just like, you know, sitting down for dinner together or doing an activity together, or even watching TV together and just being together in that room. And you feel kind of the presence that everybody's theoretically cared for the same way. So like you don't love one, one child more than the other. Everybody's loved and everybody's cared for. So how do you balance that? Because I'm guessing if you have five at a time, would they be from the same, um, Nope, five different cases right now. So times five. So five law guardians, five caseworkers, five nurses, all these people have visits. So that's I did an article for a magazine in um, from New York City. They saw a TikTok video I went uh, I made. It got like 120,000 views about like my experiences. So basically during COVID, when it happened, everything moved to Zoom. So nurse visits. Um, uh, therapies moved to Zoom. The visits they had with their parents moved to Zoom. So luckily, my wife uh, had a like a brick and mortar location job. She had to go, you know, work to a place, and everything closed here. But it was still demanding and stressful because we had to undertake all the visits in terms of like what the caseworker did or what the nurse did or what everybody else did. So we had 22 hours of Zoom calls for like four or five months, which is ridiculous, which is like almost a job in itself. But yeah, 
these the five kids we have are from five different cases. So everything is multiplied by the amount of people involved by obviously the amount of cases. You, you guys, I think you and your wife, you're a great example. What advice would you give to people that are a bit apprehensive about fostering or people that are fostering? Just talk to us about just the idea, the concept is amazing. What advice would you give to people that want to foster or considering? Yeah, one, like you said, uh, movies, Hollywood, uh, the media, although that blended movie was a, a bit as accurate, I think, as it would be, but you have shows and stuff like that in the news. You have kind of the horror stories, like the abuse stories and foster care and stuff. So like really asking someone that's a foster parent, or if you're thinking about it, find a, a group. I mean, there's Facebook groups, there's people in your community, like why, like what are their motivations for doing it? How have they helped people? How have, how has it changed their life, their mindset, you know, who they are as people as well. And and just a real depiction of what that is. Because even when I did my orientation there in class training with other people, it was all like rainbows and unicorns. I would rather had a, when it's like scared straight, like you will have kids that are drug addicted. You will have kids with developmental delays. You have kids, if you do accept them, special needs children, you have to treat differently. So you have all these considerations, you know, there are good caseworkers, there are bad caseworkers, there are situations you can't control. None of this, I wasn't, I was told in orientation or training, you know, in-class training. So really finding somebody that's actually have, has been through it and a support group. So we have, we were in kind of several groups that, you know, before COVID, we would meet up with like all the kids at somebody's house, hang out, you know, talk. Uh, and that kind of thing. So if you are a foster parent, definitely it gets stressful. And and people that aren't foster parents, like, yeah, you're doing a great thing, but they only uh, really understand the top level. So it's like, you know, if you, you know, maybe you were in a war or something, I was never a soldier. I can't understand that, you know, that emotion or that experience fully. I can relate to it. Like, you know, thank you for your service. You must've been through something rough but I can't truly connect on that level. So having a support system that understands those pain points is huge because at times it gets really stressful. Wow, 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 wow. I was speaking to a very good friend of mine yesterday and we were talking about definitely in the future going down that line of adopting, even if you have other kids, because I just, you know, sometimes when I just hear these stories and it's like, this happens over and over and over again. And of course, every year a child, more children are born. So you, unfortunately have a lot percentage keep going into the foster system so my question to you then then tying it back because i also want us to make get a holistic view of who you are as an individual what advice would you give to people on their journey to fatherhood and i know this is something where healing um become man identifying getting one's identity and then acknowledging what fatherhood is what advice would you give to people that are not yet fathers that are still on the journey yeah, I, I, I would say come to terms what, with whatever you're struggling with before that, ideally. So like if you do, like first identify like who you are, what you're about, and how have the things that you've been through impact you as a man or, or lack thereof in terms of like what masculinity is to you or how, it, how has it like, you know, affected your psyche or kind of is holding you back in the sense. So you don't have that tying you down when, whenever you have a child, either biologically or through, you know, foster care or adoption or taking care of relative children or whatever your situation. So I guess coming to terms really who you are um, and not necessarily obviously working it out right away, but identifying some of the things that 
have impacted you in terms of like your relationship possibly with your father, if it was good or bad, what you can take out of it, what you can mirror, like the things, thinking about the things that were special to you, the time spent or a specific activity or how you would want, you know, to be as a dad. So for me, the driver was that I don't want to be like him. So I want to do better and I want to give a different experience. So identifying that and, and really trying to, you know, create good habits or things of that nature or think how you can, I mean, the biggest thing you can do is be present, honestly, be present both, uh, you know, mentally, um, emotionally and, and physically. I think that's the biggest thing and the easiest thing. I mean, it's easier said than done, but yeah. really in, in our busy lives too, because, you know, sometimes you're the breadwinner and, you know, your spouse or partner is, you know, stay at home taking care of the kids and, you know, you have other stresses outside of the home. So really figuring out some time where you can just be like one-on-one -on -one alone time or really dedicating some time, I think is huge as well. I think you almost, you, you pretty much answered the next question I wanted to ask, which is what advice would you give to existing fathers? And is there anything, because I think we've talked a lot about it as you've been, honestly, when I look at the numbers, I keep looking at it and I'm thinking to myself, is it 25 kids? How, what advice would you give to existing fathers in being present and all those other things that make a good father? Yeah, I think you may connect with like if you have more than one child, obviously you'll have your firstborn or however you have more than one. I think really understanding like who that 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 child is and what they really need, because sometimes it has to be packaged differently, like yeah. the the caring or the uh, the being present or showing that, you know, you actually love them or care them. You know, some kids don't necessarily re like respond well to saying I love you or they don't say it back. But let's say, you know, they're passionate about music so you encourage that and you go to every concert they have or something like that and that's what they resonate with so figuring out what each child that you have resonates with and how you can have that one-on-one -on -one relationship instead of you know possibly you know if you have multiple kids treating them all the same way obviously you you love them all the same but you may have to show that love in different ways for them to feel loved it's been an absolute blessing to speak with you. And honestly, it's, it's amazing to hear that there are such people like you that still have so much love to give and are passionate about showing and expressing love. For people that are definitely interested in this, I'll definitely be in touch with you. People that would like to get in touch with you, how can they reach out to you and your other platforms? Yeah, I'm pretty much at this point on every social media platform. So, I mean, Roman Prokopchuk isn't, common in where I am in the US, but in Eastern Europe, it is a common first name and a common last name. But I think I, I rank well as the top Roman Prokopchuk in the world. So any social really, uh, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, uh, YouTube, um, Facebook, Clubhouse, TikTok, I'm on every platform. So you can direct message me, contact me there. Or like you mentioned, my company, Novazora Digital, if you fill out a form, reach out that way as well. So you can it's it's not as hard as you think to find me online absolutely and I, I, without without going further do you have any last words that maybe relate into what we talked about or something new you'd like to share with the listeners before we wrap it up yeah just i think everything's overwhelming till it's done like if you ask me like going back to before so three four years ago it wasn't even the thought to be a foster parent and to uh possibly foster to adopt and then 
when I first started it, it was daunting to have two children and not one. And then it was three, four, then five, then six. And now since June of 2018, 25. So you as a human being will have self-doubt. So when you put yourself in a situation of something new in a chaotic environment, your kind of preservation mode kicks in and say, no, I don't want to do that. Don't rock the boat. You know, you want to be in a state of comfort and ease and safety, but you truly experience kind of some of the biggest growth when you step out of your comfort zone. So you truly don't know what you can accomplish until you actually do it and then you reflect on it.